0: Big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. The East of England has a long and noble tradition of nurturing and developing writing talent, whether in poetry, prose, or on the stage and screen. Think Kazio Isaguru, Zadie Smith, P.D. James, Ian McEwan, Ruth Rendell, even Alfred Lord Tennyson. All products of our first-class creative hothouse. My guest this week, Dr. Garrick Fincham, has published his debut science fiction novel, Interchange. The book is set amidst the debris of a failed Mars colony, and chronicles the desperation of its few remaining inhabitants. It's a tremendously assured debut, so much so that with Garrick's blessing, I've turned one of his short stories from the Interchange universe, Storm Damage, into a dramatised audiobook, read by me. You can find Storm Damage on the same Eastern Promise feed as this episode. Do give it a listen, but not until after the interview, recorded in the atrium of the Centrum Building on Norwich Research Park. We've got good coffee, good company, because I'm here with Dr. Garrick Fincham of the UEA. We're in uh, the centrum building on the Norwich Research Park. Garrick, welcome to Eastern Promise. And you are part of the UEA uh, infrastructure. Just tell us quickly what you do for the UEA. We'll park that and get to why you're really here.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to laugh at being part of the UEA infrastructure because I have worked for it for 17 years. So I do, <laughs> I do feel like that many days. Um, well, I'm the associate director of planning. Um, that isn't town planning or planning of anything particularly exciting, but it, it, it is a data-heavy job. And so what we do is create big statutory returns, um, sort of regulatory compliance thing. But excitingly, this year we're getting into data science and we're just launching a new team that, you know, is going to be doing some sort of pretty futuristic sounding work in, in that sort of data space. So we're looking at machine learning and at first some primitive AI, which I think swings nicely into, you know, why, why we're really here to talk. I'm avoiding the word segue there. Yes.
0: No, no. <laughs> Go for it. Let's segue. <laughs> but what we're here to talk about, he pauses to let the lady yeah. pour the beans into the yeah, machine, that, which is that's, vital work. That's the, and we're that's not the, going to interrupt her.
1: That's the good coffee coming. That's the
0: good coffee <laughs> on the way. Um, you're really here to talk about is your novel. You are yes. you, Well, when I looked you up on Kindle, you were not. You know, I, I noticed there were a number of titles, most of which relating to archaeology. Yeah. Um, which, which is your is your doctorate's in. That's so right. You, yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. Tell us. I, I'm I'm always loath to give the title because in case the interviewee says um no, but it's interchange. <laughs> that is
1: indeed. It's it interchange. Is, it is interchange. So effectively, um, I wanted to bind together my day job and my past in archaeology. So really what that means is something to do with sort of data and AI in a nice sort of science fiction kind of way and rubble. Um, <laughs> and so um, the main setting of the novel is a future Mars where, you know, instead of everything being spangly and shiny and Elon Musk-like, the colony has completely failed. Millions of people have died and I don't what,
0: know. it still seems on the Musk level.
1: <laughs> well, could, could well be, isn't it? Um, yes, may, maybe it's what the inside of Twitter feels mm, like yes. at the most. Um, but the um, allegedly, but the um, you know the main thrust of the novel is that you have a group of survivors that have clung on for over a hundred years, scrabbling around, reusing stuff, um, living in the concrete ruins. But part of what's still there is this Titanic. Digital infrastructure, which has been fragmented, but bits of it are kept going by um, windmills, solar panels, whatever. Um, and what that digital infrastructure was was a, a sort of massive communications and/or project management uh, network. And when the wind blows, um, these occasional surviving cameras and projectors are showing images of the past population of Mars. So everything is sort of riddled with. Harmless ghosts, um, you know, they're, they're engaged in the, the very tasks they were engaged in on, on the day the world ended. So you've got this sort of very, sort of almost um, <clears throat> millennial, um, you yeah. know, in its classic sense, uh, end of the world feeling to the whole thing. But as the novel progresses, um, you find that there are other ghosts which are much, much more dangerous and more entertaining. Um, and you know, as the whole thing moves to a, a Conclusion, you've got this interplay between AI, um, virtual reality, concrete, rubble, uh, and really desperation by the end. So that's sort of what the novel is, a, is about um, an attempt to do something a little bit different to the normal sort of Red Mars type colonization of Mars. Um, and, you know, through a few spills and thrills along the way.
0: Mm. Would you classify it as hard sci fi? hard essay. Yeah,
1: Yeah it's sort of yeah, hard dystopian science fiction um, very definitely and you know everything that happens in the book is based in either an extension of existing technology or I think an, exist, an extension of existing social trends until the point that those social trends can't be continued and so the whole novel takes place not at the point of collapse so it's not a sort of post-apocalypse uh, sort of <coughs> zombie survival <thing. laughs> um it's a hundred years afterwards and i thought that yeah. would be quite interesting because you know in, in archaeology really what you you know one of the fa- most fascinating periods in say you know roman britain is is the years immediately post because you know what what's going on how are people surviving in the in the rubble so if you like this is a sort of you know early anglo-saxons on mars you know how do these people survive they're called Squatter's, um, you know, squatter occupation traditionally in archaeology. You know, the people immediately post or, you know, a couple of hundred years post a, a, some terrible calamity um, when they're making do and society is beginning to rebuild in another form. So that's what you've caught here in the novel is that, that moment where the disaster is behind them. Um, there's a form of stability. Everybody's really fed up um, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's time to rebuild. And I think one of the key things about the book is that the the main character, Jude, is um, she's trying to drag her people, her tribe, into a a different future, a different path. But because they're surrounded by these vast, all-encompassing, amazingly impressive ruins and these fragments of a technology they can never match, everybody is psychologically overshadowed by this sort of overmighty past. And so the predominant feeling of sort of ennui and depression that many of them feel is because they look out the window and they see you know these awesome shells of what was once you know thriving civilization, and then nothing they can ever do, and nothing they can ever achieve in their lifetimes, nothing they will ever see, will be anywhere near um, what they can see reflected in these r- ruins. And so, how do you overcome that? How do you How do you shift to a different path and say, actually, you know, no, okay, this isn't going to be a civilization at its peak, but we're going on to a new path, a new start. And and actually, that's valuable in itself. So there's a sort of whole sort of identity shift going on, Um, which actually I think is quite, you know, one can draw analogies, um, you know, if you're inventive enough between a novel, any novel and almost any sort of trend (laughs) or subject. But there are sort of, you know, post-fossil fuel economy parallels. Um, You know, are we in a post-growth society? Um, I was listening to the radio this morning about, you know, the things that will probably have to go, you know, fast fashion, you know. You, you can't see me because you're, you're on the radio, but you'll know I'm already. I've already made the shift away from fast fashion. No, never, I think never, never I a devotee a train of fast fashion. Setter, I think, <laughs> rather than, well, possibly you know. in possibly in the new world where we're all um, sort of living in secondhand clothes for uh, you know, re-loved, pre-loved clothes. Um, oh forever. Um, I, you
0: <laughs> know, I've, I'm wearing my my, my best tweed uh, blazer this morning, and I'm describing this for the listener, and you know, it's the kind of thing where my mother would say that's a nice jacket, where did you get it? <laughs> if I said, um, oh, uh, Oxfam, her face would fall <laughs> faster than a Liz Truss mini-budget. Like, um, uh, oh, Michael. But... You um, look
1: very snappy in it, if I may well, say I, so. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: For the audience. So. No, no, no consideration has changed hands. <laughs> so. um, what fascinates me is, uh, several things actually fascinate me, is, first of all, it's the idea of something benign like a project management tool, essentially benign, essentially useful, that's kind of morphed and um, uh, taken on a significance far, far away from its initial purpose and uh, conception and has ended up having a whole wider life, uh, for good or ill. And, And the other thing I think is really interesting about what you've said is were the parallels with archaeology always in your mind from the start? Or was that something that kind of you, you stopped and went, oh, I suddenly realised I'm bringing in this whole wealth of my you know experience into this? Hmm. Or was that something you consciously planned?
1: Um, it was always there. I You know, I suppose I... You draw on yourself, and people say, don't they? Write about what you know, and I think that's a... a, a phrase that's often misunderstood um, because then people say, well, how could you write Lord of the Rings or how could you write Dune? But you draw on your own experience for these fantastical settings and what I wanted to do was have something really rooted in what I know um, so that it could be as realistic and credible as possible and an absolute passion of mine is world building. So I have read many books that frankly are spoiled by um, some pretty fundamental errors um, in, in you know, either geography or the way the world works. It just, it, it, you know, the lack of credibility suddenly pushes you out of the story. Um, and, you know, uh, sometimes that can be sometimes that can be fun. Sometimes you just laugh at it. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a moment in, you know, the original Indiana Jones film where he digs into, you know, the first Egyptian temple. And there is no Egyptian temple that ever is that pristine. After the thousands <laughs> of years, it's sort of sat there. And so it's, it's unrealistic. But, you know, that's Indiana Jones. And, that, you know, that, that, that's, that's its forte. But in something like a hard science fiction novel, you have to be, you know, as bang on as you can. And so the way things age, the way structures decay when they're abandoned, the way sand or dust will sort of build up, the way bits of technology may continue to work. All of that was uh, as true to life as I could make it and was a... uh, Was it there from the beginning? I think it was the beginning. I think I just had in my mind this awesome, ruined Mars. And there were three or four goes before I really got the novel underway about what story I was going to set in that setting. So the setting was 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 the passion at first. The other thing I'd say about that is... Uh, behind the book lies about four, five, six years of research into Mars itself. So, you know, attending lectures about, you know, ancient lakes at the Natural History Museum, you know, reading endless wow. stuff, my family living and treading with Mars. Um, you know, my wife, I think, knows, you know, um, the Syria Plateau as well as I do. <laughs> and, it, and it, it you know, it, it, there was a, every piece of geographical detail within the book is as accurate as I could make it. There's even a fantastic tool uh, free to use from NASA, where what they've done is taken elevation maps of Mm. Mars to help you plot or, you know, to plot rover journeys. Essentially, that's what they're using it for. They're using it to predict where the best places for a manned landing might be. But this is available to the public. So, you know, I plotted all of the journeys on, you know, the, the the book is a road movie, so there are people who are moving vast distances and thousands of miles. Um, but in a sort of very um, yeah, what's the word? Remorseless way. So they're in these trucks that basically move at fifty miles an hour, um, <clears throat> twenty four hours a day. Yeah. And you can cover a lot of distance in, in that that, uh, that time. But the, the journeys they're on and the roads that have been laid out are all you know that that they could all be constructed for real. Uh, yeah. As far as I know, and as far as as far as I know, as far as NASA knows. Um, so there's, a, there's an awful depth of realism to it. Um, yeah, I just want to come back to the thing you said about the project management tool. You know, are, are project management tools ever benign? Um, I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose it's the use to which we put them. But the, the, the point about the project management tool, and again, it goes back to um, the realism and the depth of history. But the idea around the project management tool comes from the building of medieval cathedrals. So the building of medieval cathedrals takes generations and I became, or took generations, and I became quite fascinated about the way in which you would extend a project over multiple lifetimes in the modern world and using digital technology um, to sort of communicate and edit out time lags in conversations between, say, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, but also you could effectively edit out um, generational time lags. So. If Literally what the project management system is, is a place where an individual, a professional individual that's needed Mm. for the project team, can be uploaded. Um, They are there as a simulation. Um, You can only be uploaded once. That's kind of one of the rules of the software, so that you don't get committees staffed with different versions of the entirely same person. Um, We can all imagine how fun that would be. That's a shame. I think uh, we (laughs) Sunak would have
0: have been calling, had that been uh... So, a possibility. So, so Boris Johnson certainly. Boris Johnson
1: certainly. Would. Would. But my word, what a committee that would have been. Um, so you, um, but you, you come up with effectively an eternal project management team to give consistency over the length of a multi generational project. And the project that's underway in this scenario is an interstellar vessel. So again, a lot of science fiction takes um, things like faster than light travel. Um, you know, okay, great idea, really good narrative plot device, but I set out thinking, well, actually, if you're not going to do it that way, if you are going to try and reach across the stars in a sublight way, the project to build that vessel would be much more like the scale of building a medieval cathedral um, or a medieval castle, sort of multi-generational uh, effort, um, than it would be, say, I don't know, you know building the Starship Enterprise. So. You know, you begin to get a sense of the depth of history, but then also the scale of industrial effort. And that those two parameters begin to sort of ground the world in a real situation, which makes the whole thing hang together in a, a, for me anyway, a a, a satisfyingly grim, (laughs) narratively interesting interesting (laughs) way. Let's talk about the craft.
0: The craft of being a writer, because you've uh, you, you've made me feel quite inadequate now with the depth of the research you've put in. Is there an extent to which this is what I wanted to ask? Is there an extent to which the book has been basically fighting to get out of your head and onto oh. uh, into a a, a a form that others can share?
1: Hell's bells, yeah. Um, I in multiple different versions. Days when you just think, oh, I I hate this. I hate it. It's like a sort of thing on your shoulder that you mm. just. You know, it's a compulsion. And I think, um, you know, when I think about you know, a quite choppy personal life, sort of family ill health, young daughters, two twins, um, you know, various different things occurring, all in the backdrop of this, this book, which, you know, under any normal circumstances, a rational individual would probably have put aside for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I kept at it on, on the sort of pretext that it was an escape. And, and, and actually, just became this Herculean <laughs> boulder to sort of push along. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a real drive to, to get it out of my head. But
0: like the Martian monkey on your back. The
1: Martian right? monkey on my back. But, you know, in terms of the, the craft and the research and all of that sort of stuff, I mean, because of my background, because of the sort of academic work I did, I... Um, and actually because of the, the sort of technological stuff I are in the workplace. You've got all this sort of fuel sitting there. You've got a lot of the depth of research. I mean, I've been interested in Mars since, oh, I don't know, I first read War of the Worlds, I think aged about nine. Um, so, you know, Mars is just one of those things that I think anybody even remotely interested in space sort of looks up. The first thing you see is the moon. Probably the second thing you think about is, Mars, because it's you know the closest analog we've got to a habitable world. Um, so those things were always there as sort of deep fuel. Um, but the actual craft of creating a, a world, I mean that that built up in layers over time. It's something mm. that sort of skews gently. You test things. You think, oh no, that doesn't quite work. And then what's strange um, is that there's a point where the thing takes on a life of its own. So, you know, there are a number of locations in the book. Um, and th- there's just a point where you think, no, know what, that, that thing must happen in that place, or that place must be in that specific location, because I can no longer envisage changing the world.
0: Mm. So the
1: world in itself sort of solidifies, becomes real, You've got all of this sort of sociological, historical, archeological, geological, geographical date sort of information that sort of locks the thing together. And so it, it, you, you then cannot change it. And that's a magic moment because then you're not writing about a fictional place. Mm. You're writing about a place that's real, at least in my head. Um, and the same happens with characters. And so the, the, the plot almost is the third element to a novel. Um, But in my experience, world building, getting to know your characters and what are their sort of deep motivations, you know, those are the two things that gel. And then you set those in motion. And it is the interplay between those really thought through characters and a really thought through background that generates the plot. Um, And and that's sort of the way I work. Other people doubtless work in different ways. Um, but it, it the book almost writes itself at that point. But you've done the hard yards, getting to know those people, living with those people in yeah. your head, um, driving with them in the car. You know, it's sort of you know it becomes oh. quite an intense experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and if, do you have sort of plans um, for? Uh, I'm just interested to ask this: uh, plans for sort of follow-ups yes. with? And are you, do you find yourself toying with plots in the future when you've, you've got sort of plots before there to solidify, mm. if that makes kind of mm, sense? Mm, it's, mm. it's like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a historical allegory. Sort of, you work, you're working out how to, um, how to land the troops on D-Day as you're still loading them on back on the boats for Dunkirk yeah. kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, so I've written since the early 1990s in a serious way. Um, inspired by a, a long semi-disastrous walk across the Lake District in which I almost drowned in an upland bog. I was backpacking at the time and I saved myself from drowning as my rucksack uh, waist strap snapped, shifted over the back of my head and I fell face first into a, a moss bog um, and um, you know, I was on my own. So the only way I could think of of saving myself, I actually thought there was a moment where I thought, this is it. They're going to find you with your feet sticking up in the air <laughs> like a cartoon. Stone cold dead in the middle of it. I rolled over onto my back. Yeah. Um, which, of course, saved my life, but it did soak all of my camping equipment. Yeah. So there was a long and uncomfortable stretch in a peat-soaked tent. And I picked up a paperback in a local um, news agency in a place called Chapel Style and how this had made its way into this sort of turning wire rack, I don't know. But it was Desolation Road by Ian McDonough, which is a book you know, you'll not be surprised to learn was set on Mars. Uh, by the uh, time I got home, I got a sort of nifty little short story uh, in my head, which turned out to be the first piece of work I ever sold. Um, I, I wrote it in 1992 and didn't sell it to, for almost two decades later, so it was, you know, uh, it was it long in fruition. But there's a number of short stories, nine short stories, um, that explore different backgrounds in a loose historical framework in three broad periods. There's a sort of human, still a time of humans, it's called, which is the sort of era in which interchange is set. And there are some short stories there that are in the the same world. These various different settings, not necessarily in the same world. I mean, I've arranged them chronologically as as though they are historical. And that, those nine short stories sort of, Um, are coming out in a book called Price of Starlight probably in the Easter Um, and that gives a good framework for future uh, novels and future sort of thinking around plots and stuff Um, but I am halfway through writing a book which has been uh, quite challenging. Uh, Its working title is The Haradath Assignment. It's going to be the first of a series of ten. It's really a commentary on advanced industrial capitalism and how it can go horribly wrong when competition is completely unfettered. Um, And the reason I found it challenging was because I had to invent an entirely new setting. So what I wanted to do was take a holiday from Mars, (laughs) distance (laughs) myself from that world, and then face all of the sort of um, anxiety-inducing challenges of inventing an entirely new space, with entirely new characters, um, so why one does that, I don't know. I suspect it's a bit like, you know, um, maybe I shouldn't comment on, upon childbirth, but I, you know, I know from, I know, I know from uh, my wife, you know, the <coughs> the second one, you know, you know, we we were lucky, we had two in the same go, we had twins, but you forget how agonising it all is, and then you go in for your second well. Yeah, it's a bit like that with novels, I suspect, you know, you forget how absolutely miserable it is. But I've got through that. I've got through that, um, I've got through that stage, and I'm sort of halfway through writing the first draft. So yeah, there's plenty of um plenty of stuff that's on on the boil. Um, and some of it is uh, some of it's well advanced, you know, some is sort of tucked away for f- future sort of thinking. And there's a there's a there's a whole novel waiting really around AI and automated decision making and if i can just digress for a moment digress um, away and um, this this is really interesting territory because if you think about classic ai and classic science fiction you know you, you basically it's always you know better than us the robots are going to take over the world sort of thing um, that i don't think is the threat of ai at all mm. i think the threat of ai ai will just be dumb programming And what it does is it reaches a statistically likely answer on the basis of being able to run millions of scenarios. Mm -hmm. There's no intelligence there at all. But what's the effect then? And this is the interesting bit. What's the effect on human agency? Because if you consider a system that says, here is the outcome of a decision that you as a human need to make, and I, the machine. Can predict the best decision to say 90, 95% accuracy. Who in their right mind would take a decision other than that that the mm. machine has told you? So this mute, unintelligent, vast-scale, you know, sort of data and programming will rob us of agency. You know, it's, it's you're back almost to that medieval argument, and there you, you know, go again, putting the history. <laughs> into it. But but you know. The, the people of the past were not stupid, and they've been there in different forms in, in in almost every human problem you can think of. But the medieval the medieval argument about predestination you know if, if if God knows all the time, do we have free will? Can we possibly have free will if the future is you know fully predicted by God? Well, actually, the modern conundrum is: Do we have free will if every decision is perfectly predictable and improved? If we simply do what the machines tell us if you link that to the amazon five star rating culture where if you're commercially successful you're writing something (sighs) i'm talking about books here of course um, you're writing something or producing something that's probably at its you know not not the lowest common denominator but you know you are writing something that's popularist you're going to get the most number of reviews and it's got to be quality popularist, as it were, so that you're getting the most volume of five-star reviews. That's the way you'll make money in that environment. If you're doing something a little groundbreaking, um, I mean, great examples: British new wave science fiction of the nineteen seventies, J.G. Ballard novels like *High Rise*, which were then turned yeah. into that fantastic film with um, Tom Hiddleston mm-hmm. in a. In a five-star popularist rating system, that book would never have been a commercial success. And so you combine the destruction of human agency through AI and machine learning with the destruction of the ability to culturally innovate through these five-star commercial crushes. um, You've got a recipe for total stagnation until, you know, and here's the exciting plot point, something terrible happens. And I recently got interested in gurus. So how do gurus rise on the internet? How do people who talk, frankly, gibberish get thousands of followers? And so in a tightly controlled, rationalist, machine-learning society, the thing that will break the mould is probably a guru, somebody who is irrational, someone who is able to mobilise the populace, in some way that probably they shouldn't be mobilised for their own good, um, but they do so out of sheer frustration uh, about being sort of trapped in this rationalist environment. So again, you get that tension between emotion, uh, rationality, mm-hmm. which again is a classic ancient uh, tension talked about by many authors through the centuries, and that's where your explosive you know, plot moment comes mm-hmm. from, because... Yeah, okay. The guru is going to shake the tree, but probably not for the good. <laughs> um, so, how do you escape the fact that your rational world is really boring as hell? Um, probably delivering the best material results, but is going to be psychologically miserably unsatisfying. <laughs> so, that, you, know, there you have a there you have a plot.
0: Are there many times, just drawing on your archaeological knowledge? that humanity has gone down a bit of a cul-de-sac, te- technologically speaking, when they've produced something, not unlike the system you're describing, that's really eloquently and powerfully. How, how has, it, has that happened? And how has humanity sort of course-corrected? Or have we course-corrected?
1: happened time and time and time again in big ways and small ways so you know if you take the ancient world which you know had been uh stable's the wrong word but it had it had existed in a cultural form We're talking about the european ancient world here greece and rome and its predecessors Um, economy is based largely on slave labor and again this is this is how economics background history have an interplay with social structure which gives you a credible background for a a novel or you you know you look back into the past and you see well how did one thing affect another so an economy based on slave labor stifles innovation because labor if you're fighting endless wars to expand the empire is cheap and it's not worth the cost of innovating as the empire slows down in you know sort of 400s AD rather, um, what you get is the beginnings of innovation so you get some really interesting attempts to mechanise and automate crude um, and then you know sort of factory production is kicking off in a way that we would recognise almost as uh, almost industrial Um, and that society collapses. Uh, because really can't make the transition quick enough. Again, that could be an analogue with decarbonisation, could not it? So, you know, we've got a limited amount of time. We keep being told that, um, you know, there are perils in not actually getting on and doing it.
0: Um, And I think, just just, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but that actually speaks to your earlier point about the gurus, in that there's a lot of uh, mileage, unfortunately, to be had for those people who are willing to say, stand up and say publicly what a lot of people particularly in the older generation, not to generalise, but here we go, I'm generalising anyway, um, uh, who basically don't want to hear that story,
1: Mm. Mm.
0: who don't want to, out of guilt, out of fear, they want to be told, it's okay, do what you like, Mm. you can continue to drive your big diesel car, you can continue to do X, you can continue to do Y, you know, this is all rubbish, we're fine. Those people, you know, I'm thinking of like Andrew Tate is a good example, who was rightly put in his box by (laughs) Greta Greta Thunberg um, in hilarious nine-word fashion. But it really speaks to that point, doesn't it, that um, those gurus emerge because they're telling people something they want to hear and don't want to do.
1: This is exactly it. And, um, you know, if you think about the current situation, well, backtrack a moment. I, I do have faith in humanity. I, mean, Good. I, hope, I, hope, Good. That, I hope that comes through in, in the work. I have faith in our endless adaptability. Now, that's not a get out of jail free card for the environment, but uh, and the damage we're doing. It's more from but the
0: community chest, part, More,
1: isn't more it? from the community chest, part. Um But um, what you see when you reach these sort of inflection moments in history is that there is a system that has run out of steam. It collapses dramatically as it must do uh, to sort of clear the way for something new, and then something new emerges. The choice is not about whether or not there's a collapse. And indeed, you know, talking about classic sci-fi, anybody familiar with Asimov's Foundation? You know, Harry Seldon's great words about saving the empire is, you, know, you can't save the empire. What we can do is shorten the period of chaos when it collapses. Mm. And that's what is and the foundation are for. And, and that's that's what we're dealing with you can't head off the in inverted commas collapse of the way we live now it's how painful do we make that transition um, and if you cling on to a dead model too long you get into the Roman Empire um, you know rather than a gentle transition <laughs> just just in terms of looking for those transitions though and, and looking for um, the sorts of trajectories technology takes, like you know, nobody gets the chance to go to the historic dockyard at Portsmouth. Again, sorry, drawing on uh, drawing on history, but you know, history and science fiction. People often think they're strange bedfellows. You know, history and archaeology and classics. Classics. That's you know a history of how stuff worked. That's a study of how stuff worked in the past. Science fiction, really good science fiction, about how things might work in the future. You know, you are. Taking those old models, and you're almost running different scenarios with them. So, to my mind, you know, you've got past history, 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 and you have got future history, and so those two things are intimately interlinked. Um, at you know points which I, I just can't understand how you would write science fiction <laughs> with a deep knowledge of history. But just going back to the Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, walk round in sequence: the Mary Rose, HMS Victory and HMS Warrior. And what you see is a sort of through-deck, cannoned warship, and they are all laid out in exactly the same way. Big open decks, rows of guns, and open decks so that the crew can sort of man those guns and swing them around and do what they've got to do. What you're seeing is an increase in scale, and then by the end, with so they're all, you know, the Mary Rose is tiny, the Warrior is huge. and that growth in size, uh, right at the end, is permitted by you know, industrial technology. So you've got an iron steam driven warship that's laid out in exactly the same pattern. And that pattern had been the same for hundreds of years. Just decades later, mm-hmm. that whole paradigm yeah. of warship construction has gone. And you're into something that looks more like a sort of World War II. Of battleship, you know, World War I, obviously, yeah. dreadnoughts and, and all of that. But then that pattern of battleship, of warship, you know, stays the same until the next big innovation. You know, we don't have warships that look like that anymore because, mm. you know, it, it's more about air power and sort of submarine power. So your critical capital ships are aircraft carriers. So if you're just looking at the evolution of that military technology, yeah. you see two inflection points. But the, the, you know, the interesting thing about the Warrior is how far we were prepared to push a really, really old model uh, of construction, a pattern of warship, before we suddenly realised all of the um, advantages that were opened up by that new industrial technology and how we could completely re-envisage in a massive act of imagination uh, a kind of modern warship, you know, circa 1890, 1900. If you apply that to digital technology. You know, those of us who are, you know, in our 40s, 50s, you know, I remember the first time a VHS video recorder entered the house and how amazing it was to <laughs> take a little clip of casualty with somebody going in and out of a, it's the first thing we ever recorded, uh, being put in and out of the back of an ambulance and being able to say, look, we can make him go in, we can reverse it and make him come out. And, and endless fun just sitting there watching this little clip go zip, 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 zip as we played with the buttons. It was revolutionary. And we are still now, in the exploitation phase of digital technology, and I think we're beginning to get the flavour of what a fully digital world would be like. But we're sort of at the um, we're at the victory stage, and we're not at the warrior stage. Yeah. So we will push digital technology to its absolute limits until it can go no further, and there will be such a moment, mm. and then there will be a paradigm shift to something different. I mean, will it be biological technology? Are we talking sort of? You know, will um, sort of genetics take over as the next big paradigm and every computer will be sort of molecular and semi, you know, um, biological? Or will it just be something we haven't thought of? And so you have those inflection points in technology, in society, in history, and and those are the points where really good, you know, um, broad canvas stories, where you've got civilizational changing events happen. The spaces in between, which is sort of where my short stories sit aware where the world is relatively stable, but what you've got is great human dramas taking place against a sort of stable background, but shaped by that background. So I've got two quite different philosophies of writing, if you take my in.
0: We are, this is Eastern Promise obviously, and uh, this is, uh, we are focused on the east of England, and we are, you are a member of staff at the UEA, which is one of the best known hubs for creative writing in the country. In terms of your craft as a writer, when did you decide you needed to bring in those sort of, I suppose you'd call them, outside reviewers, peer reviewers in, mm. in, 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 in a way, to, to take a look at what you'd written
1: mm.
0: and give you advice? I mean, and how did that, because obviously there's, there's a difference between someone just jotting stuff down for fun and going to being a full published author, as mm. you are. Um, so what was that journey like?
1: Um, That's a really interesting question. It was a lockdown journey, like so many of these these things. Um, So I'd I'd finished the book. um, And, you know, you've put years and years of effort into this thing. And there comes a moment where you've got to let it go. And you've got to let it go into the world. And you want the best for it. And I, you know, lockdown came. And I said to myself, "Right, OK, look, you're done now. Um, so I'd finished it, I got a draft ready to go, da-da-da. And then I sort of had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who works in a library down in Dorset, and he, he just got involved with a, a mentor, um, a, a, you know, a professional writer who you know, you're working with one-to-one. And so I just thought, well, do you know what? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do that. Um, you know a couple of sessions with a mentor just to assure myself that you know it's as good as it can be and so I got involved with the got in contact with the National Writers Centre here in Norwich Um, and you know quite strangely stupid of me actually not to have tapped into their resources much earlier but I suppose I just wasn't in the right mind space the, the book was still a sort of work in progress, and I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of a full, fully published work. Um, anyway, I, through the National Writers' Centre, I ended up working with a lady called Catrue Scala. Um, absolutely fantastic um, herself, a, a, an author, um, you know, of some experience. And so, what we did then was worked through, you know, chapter by chapter. We did, you know session a month so it was only an hour a month sort of yeah, wasn't face-to-face contact but you know what I mean on, on uh, Zoom um, and I would send off a chunk of the work and she would give me back sort of advice and feedback and then we would talk through that advice and feedback in a in a session and um it, 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 it's like anything when you're writing a practical skill. I was listening to the radio this morning about how hard it is to sort of actually learn to knit, sew, or do woodwork from a YouTube video. Ultimately, you need that person that's saying, a little tweak there, little tweak there. And to be fair, you know, the, the changes that we sort of talk through to the book were not huge to implement, But the implications of them in terms of scale and style were immense. So little things like making sure that when you've written a scene, you are consistently within your... I'm tapping my temples now, I know people can't see that. Um, You're you're consistently within the head of the character whose point of view you're writing from. And it's very easy just for a sentence to slip into a third-person description of something. And I had not even realised I was doing this. But then you go back and you pull that back and you pull it back to the point of view and instead of saying, you know, there was a thing happening in the corner, you know, it's just something simple, like, you know, he glanced out of the corner of his eyes at the thing that was happening in the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes the writing so much tighter, makes it so much more vivid, you know, it comes to life. And if there's a danger with the sort of... Um, stuff i like you know i love the world building it's that you can be cramming loads of detail in that really is not of interest to the character and so that discipline of looking at everything through a character's eyes is a good internal discipline for me to sort of keep the thing taught and as a result of that process i cut probably about a fifth of the novel and really tightened it up um so there was you know was that hard um, surprisingly not I, I as soon as it had clicked you, you saw oh. oh and what I could see was me writing for fun to expound on a bit of background that wasn't necessarily needed which you then just cut and paste dump somewhere else and you think well you know what like, due course i will write a guide to Mars or something just to keep myself you know the rough the rough guide to rough Mars um, just to keep myself entertained um, but yeah once you've got that internal discipline so Catri really helped me focus sort of put some rules in place to to sort of narrow the craft as it were and, and really just make a tighter narrative
0: I think you because I I presume you're talking about something that I've experienced that you may have I doubtless you've experienced too is that you can say the character went to pick up the newspaper and then you decide you wanted to name the newspaper and then you decided you you're then you were working out in your head how much the newspaper would cost, and in this fictional world is it a fictional currency well what's a fictional currency, and how many um to the what's and you know who's who's the editor who's on the editorial board before long you're thinking you've wasted all this time when all you wanted your character to do was pick up a <laughs> blinking newspaper um, i mean this this I, I, I envy you because I remember i, I it's just I drew a sketch of a character from from during lockdown again i drew a, and uh, a sketch of one of the minor characters from my own ideas and showed that to a friend after lockdown obviously and it was so difficult because was that how you because i you get immediately on the defensive thing, this can't be any good or did you have a much higher level of confidence in your work i mean how is that i'm just interested in that first kind of mm-hmm, handing it over as if like don't be it's like being, oh. like you know putting one of your children on the stage, Mrs Worthington.
1: People can't see the face you've just pulled, which was one of sort of tremorously holding out, you know, a a kind of notional piece of work with your face screwed up in anxiety. And and that's exactly what it's like. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't think you get beyond that. At any point with any given work, you are exposing it to the world for the first time. Now, the very first time you do it, you are shooting in the dark and you don't, really know what rules you're going to be judged by it's like sitting in an exam you, you know you don't know the paper you don't know the you don't know the rules so the idea actually that people can pick up a pen write a wonderful novel and do so without professional input i mean in in no other profession you know you wouldn't expect a heart surgeon just to be brilliant at heart surgery out of nowhere uh, i could think of
0: one profession where that is very much the case and it's Member of Parliament, (laughs) because there is very little training before you get the job, or very little mentoring.
1: Perhaps you've got a sci-fi scenario there where you're not allowed into politics without intensive training, and would that be stultifying, or would it be, uh, you know, would it engender more... Quality there's, and stability. I mean. There's, there's a need to actually
0: get to the job, but mm. getting the job and then doing the job, and doing things. But we, we 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 go off on tangents, uh, and I love a tangent. Um, but um, what are your influences here in the region? I wanted to ask because I know that going, I go places like Ickworth House mm. in Barry, near Barry St Edmunds, is a, has been a very rich seam of inspiration for me. Where have you gone in our region that's kind of given you that spark that thinking oh, this is it this is how it must feel or this is mm. where you've sort of drawn it from east, wherever it comes
1: east anglia is i mean i am a am a native of uh, birmingham originally um and then i grew up in the dark peak in derbyshire so east anglia is very different to me uh to what i'm <sighs> used to and um, but my phd was uh on the landscapes of Roman Fenland. So I I got very sort of intrigued by flatness um, and marshiness and that sort of liminal in-between worlds where you don't really know, you know, in a pre-industrial, pre-defined landscape out in the fens, you don't really know where wetness ends and dry land begins. And so not so much on Mars, but in the novel that I'm writing now, Um, the Haradath assignment Um, I find myself writing about cold chilly icy marshland and I go out quite regularly to places like Brancaster and you know or you know Stifky and just that sense of landscape and how that landscape works so you know the coast here it's just amazing, particularly in bad weather, and I think that's one of the great shames about the coast. You know, people do tend to sort of say, "Well, that's a place for when it's sunny." My word, you know, there are things going on in that landscape, and the way that landscape works and just oozes into your pores, actually and and your shoes um, when you're out there. That is just, you know, you spice it up. I mean, the the the. I was writing something last night actually about the ecology of this moon, um, which is sort of wet and marshy and cold, which had once been a verdant tropical paradise, and so is um, saturated with hydrocarbons. This this stuff just bubbles out. So the, the plant life, as it retreats to a sort of cold, marshy environment, is really living off this sort of fossil fuel legacy. And so... Pretty much anything on this planet burns like a plastic carrier bag soaked in petrol full of fire lighters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you you spice it up in that sort of way. Um, but the essential feel of a character sort of sludging their way through this, you know, the way you describe that, the way the character feels, write about what you know. So, you know, if you want your character to do that, you get out there on a wet day and you sludge around sort of ply marshes or something like that. And you, you know you you come home buzzing with sci-fi inspiration. People might find that odd, um, but you've got places. You've got just fantastic places like Orford Ness. Um, oh,
0: you know, now you're talking.
1: You know that's Mars. So I've got plenty yes, of photographs of Orford Ness. Is. You know, barren, rocky, rubble. You've done the tour. I've done the tour. Um, absolutely. Don't step.
0: Fa- the, don't step over there. Don't <laughs> step
1: over. That's right. Don't. Well, and the, there's a sort kind of. Curious that pretense that, you know, you might endanger nesting birds. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, or blow my foot off. Yes. or Yes. We're, we're into more something. concerned
0: about the birds.
1: What, I mean,
0: yeah, um, uh, you're right, and you, you go into the pagodas mm. and see these remnants of what was at the time mm. high technology just l- rusting away.
1: There is, there is Mars. And there is Mars. The, the, in, the inspiration for you know, large parts of the capital city in the novel Um, Which is, of course, you know, Sancho rubble, um, a place called Big Junction, is Orford Ness, but it's also, you know, there's always inspiration. I mean, there's there's always something to look at if you open Mm. your eyes. And I think, you know, I have been asked, you know, what's the most important thing about, you know, being? Where does your inspiration come from? Well, it comes from the mundane. It comes from Anglia Square. I mean, you, you go and look at Anglia Square. Don't just walk past it going, that's a horrible carbuncle, I can't wait till they knock it down. Stand in St. Botolph's car park, look at it, think about, if you're into sci fi or you have been into sci fi, think about classic Isaac Asimov covers by Chris Foss and those strange, weird, asymmetrical, non streamlined spaceships, which in illustration, um, I mean, they're common now, aren't they? Everything is, is like that. It's big, it's bulky, it sits out in space, you know, the the Nostromo and its um, fuel thing that it's towing in Alien. Absolutely commonplace, ships that cannot land. Well, Chris Foss was the, the innovator. And you try and imagine Anglia Square in orbit, derelict, something unpleasant creeping through its corridors because it's an abandoned spacecraft. And suddenly you've got inspiration Um, and the interesting thing about Chris Foss is he grew up on Jersey and if anybody's been to Jersey it is replete with Roman not Roman sorry German um, defences from the Second World War you know the Atlantic War strange weird star fascinating fascinating spaces
0: almost steampunky
1: almost steampunky or diesel punky or whatever Yeah, but but it has that sort of weird bauer house I mean there's there's a turret with three slits in it but it's not really a turret it's this amazing concrete cylinder and he grew up there sketching those ruins and you know he's quite clear that those wartime defenses were then you know and bits of reinforced metal sticking out of them look at any of his illustrations in that period and then there are artists that followed uh, a guy called tony roberts another one called colin hay and they had this weird trailing bits of metal and that's straight out of the atlantic wall and so those kind of inspirations, you know, are scattered all over East Anglia. Um, you know, it, it took me a while to realise that during the Cold War, East Anglia was the absolute, um, you know, it was it it, it was the battlefront. Um, yes, because you have got all of the nuclear installations here for launching our early missiles. You've got um, there's a there's a particular site near Thetford, which was one of the two most secure sites in the country, open on open history days, it's now a light industrial estate, but it was where the cause for the Blue Danube bombs, which were the first airdrop bombs that we developed, um, was, were taken out of the bombs and stored separately in what they call hutches. So there are rows and rows of these things that look like little public toilets, um, but then it's surrounded by this bomb assembly infrastructure and concrete this and concrete that and blast shelters. And so you've got that dystopian, weird, fenced-off zone out of sight and out of mind of people living normal lives. You've got the air base, the air museum, near the um, airport here. Yeah. This terrible Armageddon that was being prepared right next door to normal life. So you've always got in East Anglia that curious... There's always juxtaposition in East Anglia. There's wet versus dry. There's kind of abandoned and rotting versus what's in you know, plain sight. There's Armageddon versus I mean, yeah, daily life. Y- y- Amazing.
0: Pillboxes everywhere. Pillboxes I mean, everywhere. Um, I remember walking down the canal with uh, Jack Weaver of the Greater Thetford Partnership in, in Thetford, a place you mentioned that is actually replete with history of, of many, many uh, centuries. And... We walked, walked past these in and he said, pointed out a pillbox on the side of the canal. He said, it took me ages to spot that. And we sort of stood and looked at it. And he said, "Then he said, which was kind of the point, I suppose. <laughs> and so there's, there's so much inspiration. Orford Ness, again, what a fantastic place mm. for inspiration. Who inspires you? Whose writing inspires you?
1: Uh, that, that is... That's a journey. Um, and, you know, I'm currently... Uh, uh, involved in setting up a, well, it, it's up. Uh, I have a blog site where I am reviewing classic science fiction. Where do people um, find this blog site? People it? find that at garrickfincham.uk, so you know it, it, it's there. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm working through classic sci fi that has meant a lot to me in the past and the website or the part of the website that's the blog is called is it canon and what i'm trying to get at is you know there's there are books that you pick up in the moment and they're really good and you really love them and there's something about them that chimes with your state of mind or the time or whatever and you come back to them 10 years later and they're rubbish and you really really (laughs) regret reopening them Um, And there are others that you go back to every couple of years and just reread them because Mm. they are fabulous. And that interplay between technology and society is really at its height for me in uh, science fiction of the past, in the British New Wave. So you've got towering figures like Ballard, who I've mentioned already, but also Brian Aldiss, who Mm. people don't realise... Um, was born and grew up in the Norfolk market town of Deerham.
0: Deerham, yes, um, he's got a plaque he's got, there he's now, got a, he? has
1: got a plaque there. Good man. Uh, he was one of the absolute towering figures of British New Wave. And, and just to fly the flag, and again, you know, this, as you said, this is East of Promise, it's a massive win for East Anglia, the um, British New Wave precedes American New Wave. So all of the sort of anti-war Vietnam-type novels like Joe Haldeman's Forever War and all of those more challenging sort of bits of sci-fi, you know, Philip K. Dick and all of that, it emerges out of American New Wave, which is sparked by British New Wave. And and what New Wave is, is the putting aside of science fiction tropes that evolved in the sort of pulp magazine world of the United States in the sort of 50s and Mm -hmm. you know early 60s. Um, And you get this gear shift to a more psychologically serious, painful, dark, uh, type science fiction, and Aldous is an absolute master of this. And if you want a really weird book, pick up Hot House, where he's actually telling the story. And this, this, this was one of the inspirations when I mentioned my book of short stories earlier, and I talked about, the, well, I mentioned the post-human epoch. You know, evolution isn't stopping. We might like to think it is, but it, it never does. Mm-hmm. And so, what Aldous is doing in Hot House is taking a world which is globally superheated. Plants have sort of taken over and mankind has been reduced to this sort of small monkey-like species (laughs) with vestiges of intelligence. And yet he manages to tell a story about one of these troops of monkeys. Um, Absolutely incredible piece of work and really atmospheric. I mean, when talking about disaster and inflection points and, you know, the, the climate crisis, you know, We should be reaching for some of this stuff. I mean, again, Ballard's Drowned World, which is prescient. It tells the the story of one of the last inhabitants of um, London after the water level has risen. Mm -hmm. Everything's underwater. You travel through this sort of swarming jungle that's overtaking the city by boat. And the character finds himself slowly merging into that sort of beat, beat, beat of the jungle. So he's taking elements of Conrad's heart of darkness. He's taking sort of environmental concerns of the time and weaving this strange, powerful, progressively dehumanising narrative about how, you know, we come from nature and we'll return to nature. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, you know, nature's coming for us. So you've got these, you know, so that, that new wave, period. You know, those, are the, those are the real modern motivators for me. But as a child, you know, going back to Asimov, you know, okay, most of the characters look like they should be wearing gabardine macks and you know, smoking pipes. That's how they, they come across. They come across as 1950s architect type of Americans. But the structures of society and the breadth of Asimov's imagination and his world building is unparalleled. I mean, perhaps from Dune, you know, that, 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 that remains an absolute classic. Less easy to reread. So, you know, that's one of Mm. the ones where I do dip into it, particularly the the core trilogy. But I've never quite risked, and it feels like a risk, to sort of reread the whole thing in in one go. Um, And then I have to give a shout-out to Stuart Cowley's Terran Trade Authority series of handbooks. So there are four, um, but the most powerful one, I think, is something called Space Wrecks. And the premise behind Stuart Cowley's books were to take out of copyright art, science fiction art, uh, all the stuff I love, you know, Tom, uh, sorry, Tony um, Roberts and uh, Colin Hay that I was talking about earlier, um, and take each picture and just give a little report on it. So the, the premise of the TTA handbooks is that, you know, the, the SpaceX yeah. ones is... Um, it's just a list of navigation risk reports. So you're not actually getting a story. You get a description of the accident that's led to this terrible wrecked spaceship or this terrible abandoned city that you see um, and what the perils are. Yeah. So it's quite reductive.
0: So you, you're basically bringing in a backstory to... You know.
1: uh, it's world building. It's it's like catalogue world building. You know, you go through... There's, there's one space liners, which really is just telling you about the different space lines that exist. But what's beautiful about it and what's beautiful about them about all of the TTA books is he has an acute sense of history. So you don't just have a list of space lines, you have ones that have gone bankrupt for a particular reason, or you know, ones that got into you know, trouble or ones that have got a bad safety record or whatever. So you've got all of that nuance and difference and shading in them, which really struck me as a child, right? between the eyes. I mean, I, 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 I remember getting space wrecks for Christmas in 1980 and I still have the original copy thumb <laughs> it regularly. But when you go back to them as an adult, they've got a sophistication to them that probably wasn't necessary but was clearly right in Stuart Cowley's mind. Yeah.
0: Interchange is published digitally. Yep. And, bef- and we'll, we'll talk about how people can find it in a minute. But does that, the, the, the sort of... There, there I know people. People will. There, there are people who, who do love the printed word, the spine on the shelf. Mm. Does does is that something you want to see in the future? Bearing it, you know, should when interchange is 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 a, is a huge success, which <laughs> it undoubtedly will be. Uh, and is, is that hard for it to exist only in a in a, a digital medium? Or is it something you think it's out there it's in the world and it's it's living and breathing in you know i I, I buy a lot of audio production manuals you know some mm. might say you need to actually read them um and but only in digital form and it's it's still much easier i find to pick up the written word in a in in, in a physical form than it is to sort of flick through your tablet or your, your smartphone. Does that bother you or is that something you want to see eventually or
1: well you know the 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 plan, you know, by which I mean hopefully before Easter, um, is to have a hard copy version as well. And, you know, it's published through Kindle, as you said, um, but one of the joys and dangers of the world in which we live is the speed of innovation and the sort of flexibility that that allows. So you can upload a manuscript, you know, you need the full wraparound cover. You need, you know, all of the, the sort of you know, gutter settings. You start to think about that sort of layout of a of a of a physical book. You upload that manuscript, and it's there, available to be printed on demand. And so you order that book, and it arrives physically, printed somewhere by mm. Amazon. And that is a wonderful thing, but it's also a miserable thing because you, know, you are dismantling slowly but surely the big publishing houses and this 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 is a really critical point actually because there is something beautiful about the physical yeah um but the the in, to my view the successful response of the publishing industry has been to produce ever more glorious um special editions so i have bookshelves groaning with things like Mortar Arthur or H.P. Lovecraft or even Dune, just in these nice, you know, mm. Hitchhikers, all my favourites just you know, there, <laughs> in these gorgeous books, um, which I will often just take down, open, smell, uh, not quite lick, um, but, but just physically experience, read a bit, find my favourite passage, mark my favourite passage. I've got all of those books on Kindle as well. Um, and so I don't, there was a debate about the end of the printed word. I, I hope we're over that because I think digital publishing is, a, is, a, is an extension to that. And there's just no doubt. I mean, if you go to the works of, say, a um, great sci-fi artist from Sweden called Simon Ståhlhag, you know, he's probably the new Chris Foss and, and he was someone I didn't uh, mention, but I, I have, uh, you know, I avidly collect his works. Um, you know, those are works of art with a narrative that strings the pictures together. Um, and why well, have that digitally? I mean, that, that that that's a beautiful physical object. In terms of my own work, um, you get so much more flexibility. You know, as a, as a there, there are three types of authors, right? There there's the there's the fully published, professional, gate-kept, um, you know, agented, big publishing house author. And there's, there's something important we need to say about that in a moment. There is, as far as I can tell, the equivalent of what used to be called vanity publishing, where you are effectively an indie-published author, but you pay £500 to £1,000 to have it put out through a... Minor press that has no marketing budget, Um, and you know, I don't want to be disparaging to those presses at all, but I think there are a lot of organizations out there that probably aren't giving value for money. And then you have the true indie author, and I'm one of those, right? Unashamedly, Mm -hmm. and that was a journey, but I did it only after I had had the book pass through the professional scrutiny of mentoring because otherwise it would have just felt like an easy cop but there are so many commercial barriers in the way to traditional publishing and you know one of them and this is a sensitive subject right and i have to, I have to uh, be careful that i choose my words right don't want to be uh, controversial but there is a massive issue of diversity within science fiction, or that you know, historically there has been right. It, it's it's white, middle-aged white men like me and writing, me. and and you, yes, indeed, writing. And so, the the mainstream publishers, when they look to what they, how they respond to the massive explosion of digitally available work, I think have made a decision to go for high-profile authors that they can also sell on the diversity agenda. Mm-hmm. Now that does not uh, critique the quality of the work that's coming out at all. I mean, you know, you, you, I, there's just been... It's, it's a golden age, actually, of science fiction. So you've got people like Anne Leckie writing Ancillary Justice. You've got Cameron Hurley writing The Dam Apocrypha. You have got um, Arcady Martin writing, you know, um, a memory called Empire and the series that follows from that. Just fantastic stuff. But the the professional um, publishing houses and the agent structure and the editorial structure is focusing on stuff that's brilliant but has a diversity edge. So, you, you know, you look at that, that's the way the world is. I think that's perfectly fair, given the amount of stuff that's out there by white middle-aged men uh but you think well did white middle-aged men who tend now to be underrepresented with those publishing houses at this point in time where did they go did they stop writing well no they went on the internet and then you discover quite a terrifyingly bizarre mixed world you know like any other where you have got the extremes of um what I find personally uncomfortable American military science fiction. Red in tooth, claw and, you know, (coughs) alleged prejudice. Um, They've
0: basically watched Starship Troopers and not quite understood it.
1: Said much more eloquently than I I could indeed, yes. the, The ones that have missed the point of Starship Troopers through to some really sophisticated stuff. And so I made the decision, actually, to be a fully-fledged indie author, dive in with both feet. And then you have to face being a small business, yeah? Uh. Um, and, and And that's the place where I am. So I made the decision with a well-prepped manuscript exactly a year ago. So I'll put my parents up in Cumbria reading um, a how-to-do-it indie author book that i bought on Kindle. Um, over Christmas, I thought, you know what, I, I can do this. And there are, there are many skills that you have to learn. So you have to learn, you know, setting up a website. You have to learn how to create a subscriber list with newsletters and all the rest of it. You have to be able to source professional covers, which I've done from a fantastic guy um, called Tegimaskin in Norway. Um, you have to be able to source editorial services. You then have to be able to do the production and marketing. So there's sort of many sort of hats you have to wear as a, as a proper sort of fully fledged Indie author, particularly if you want to do more than one book, which I you know I already am doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to start thinking about things like production lines and think, well, what's my writing method? And without losing any of its integrity, how can i make the process more efficient and so you start getting into spreadsheets and project management tools and all all the rest of it to try and simplify it Um, and then i'm in the process of smartening up some of those tools and you know i'll make them available on the internet for other you know there's plenty of how to do it stuff out there by the way you don't, don't need to come to me but but you know i think there are some practical tools that i can add to to the mix um so it's a you know it. That's how I that's how I get to Kindle. Um, Kindle, uh, the big problem is you know, but it's also the the strength is the lack of gatekeeper. So you know, as an author, with something that you think is good, something that to be fair, you know, other um, sort of acclaimed. Individuals have read and, you know, described as a page-turner by somebody other than me or my mum. Uh, you know, my, my mentor was extremely, you know, you must go for this. You know, you're going to make this. This is, this, is, this is great. You know, I've uh, you know, got a lot of validation from my mentor. She comes back to point earlier point about confidence. But, you know, once you've got the thing out there and you know it's good, how do you close that air gap between you and a potential audience. How do you make yourself stand out? I think I read somewhere that there was 128,000 books published in the UK alone on Kindle last year. How on earth do you get any visibility in that environment? So the freedom to publish anything has sort of swamped that marketplace. And so, you know, you find yourself um, thinking, well... You know, I need reviews. How do I get reviews? Um, you know, well, there's no way of gaming that system. You have to get your book out. You have to, you know, and it takes time for people to read them. And you don't have the budget that a publishing house might have to sort of give it out, loads of review copies and have 50 great reviews ready to go on day one. So, you, you know, that's the battle. And I think the only magic ingredient is time and persistence. And so I have said to myself, no matter what the internal psychological ups and downs, and we all have those days where we think, why the hell am I doing this on top of a day job? Um, is to commit to myself to write this next series. Um, you know, the overarching title of this is Industrial Constructs. So you get a bit of a sense of the, the flavour of that there. It's not going to be nice. Uh, it's not going to be a cosy world. Um, no Sylvanian families here. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've sort of committed to myself, it's almost a contract, I've got a contract with myself, to write a ten-book series. Um, and, and that's what I'm in the process of, of doing.
0: Contract with myself, that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. If people want to find interchange, and I'm, I have to say, I am absolutely thrilled to be working with you on turning, uh, starting with one of your short stories, into an uh, audiobook written uh, and uh, dramatised. But if people want to find Interchange, they can go to that well-known river-based um, <laughs> e-commerce site. That
1: I'm, I'm afraid so. So having, having sort of preached about the dangers of big tech and decision-making, we're all victims of it. So, yeah, Amazon, you know, Garrick Fincham, I'm there. Interchange, you'll find it. Uh, after some strange books about knitting, I think, in the States. Uh, hey. i quite, quite sure. And those from are, one to the other. Those are um, um,
0: And that is... That is a perfect place to go find it and please read it because it's a it's it's a fantastic piece of world building it is so replete you can feel the dust in your fingers as you as you read it um just going to end with a, a bit of a quick fire fun which i like to do uh tim robinson and tech east was very game for this so hopefully you will be will be too we'll start easy one your guiltiest sci-fi pleasure <laughs> one that you kind of shudder to admit to but you're going to for us.
1: <laughs> oh god, anything with a pulpy cover. Um, you know, sort of 1950s utter terrible schlock, you know, the They came m- from dimension what? Z. Anything with a letter in it, can dark continuum uh, X, you know, anything like that. Doesn't really matter what the title is. Um, you know, I'm 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 there. <laughs>
0: You kind of, yes, you sort of like. Mm-hmm.
1: Invasion of the Women from Venus. Yeah, just, I, You know, who couldn't read that? i you someone. Just a
0: very, very briefly. You, you, Your fascination with Mars, mine's very much with Jupiter, but no love
1: for Venus? Um, I think Mars was just where I sort of lighted first, and I think you've got. Well, it's a lot
0: easier to be on Mars it's than a lot, it is on Venus.
1: Well, yeah, but. The Russians you know, as, managed it
0: for ten minutes. As
1: we, as, you know, as we get further into sort of exploration and the wonderful work that, you know, frankly, you know, NASA and you know the ESA is doing, you know, Venus, but the Moon. I think the Moon is being overlooked a little bit. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got Artemis by. Um, Andy Weir, but it, you know, there's 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 a lot of stuff to come.
0: Well, they actually read yesterday they're they're actually panicking now that the Chinese are get, basically against. Yep,
1: yeah, yeah. the Moon. Yeah, yeah. Nothing um, like political that's, that's, tension. That's oh yes, so, yes. Fun five. So. Um,
0: f- James T Kirk or Captain Picard? Or Admiral Janeway, if you're of a, mi- if you're of a mind.
1: Oh, Picard, I
0: think. <laughs>
1: um, only because of the actor. Sir Pat Only because of the actor. I mean, for, for preference, I'd be sitting there watching classic SF, I think. You know, plots, uh-huh. classic Star Trek. Plots over, over special effects mm-hmm. any day.
0: Um, your favourite American SF?
1: Um, Isaac Asimov, without a doubt. Mm-hmm.
0: And is there... What's the... Yeah. Oh... I, I don't want to go too far down the, ra- down the sci-fi rabbit hole so, so. <laughs> um, Millennium Falcon or the Starship Enterprise
1: oh Millennium Falcon every day
0: thank you very held much held
1: together by chewing gum and, pla- <laughs> yes. and sticking plasters real <laughs> real a thing that yeah. you know a thing that's real
0: and uh, Barbarella or Princess Leia
1: Oh dear, we're back to guilty pleasures, aren't we?
0: I mean, I mean, in terms of a strong leadership model, but you go where you will. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, well, I think I've probably given that one away, haven't I? I mean, the character of Princess Leia is is fantastic, but the sheer schlock of Barbarella is just out of this world, quite literally.
0: <laughs> Have you watched um, the National Geographic series Mars?
1: Um, I haven't, and there's a really good reason why. It's sort of there, saved. I'd reached the point, you know, where my essay was in. I had, I had written it, um, and the last thing I wanted was to find out at the last minute that, you know, I'd got a wind speed wrong or something. So, you know, I'm waiting for the, literally the dust to settle on Mars before I, I watch that one.
0: Did you... What did you? The Marsh in the book or The Marsh in the film?
1: Ooh, uh, Both. Um, I think there is an unnecessary tension between books and films, different um, media requiring different things. I mean, you know, you compare the book of High Rise with the film of High Rise. I mean, I enjoy both. Same with The Martian, um, you know.
0: What's your, the worst sci-fi novel you've ever read and the sort never to pick up again but still owned?
1: But still own ah well I've just had a clear out so Ah. if I may may have an exemption from that
0: okay well exempt Um, the recent clear out
1: exempting the recent clear out oh god I I can't remember the title okay but it was a book set in a dystopian Britain under a fascist dictatorship where a journalist was about to sort of. come nastily unstuck. And it was such a hackneyed rip-off of, you know, any of those stories. There was nothing original in it at all. It was a tendentious political diatribe. Nothing I disagreed with, you know. It was a, it was a good, solid journalist, this fella. Be, you know, be clear whose side I was on there. But it was so crudely done that I got about... I don't know, a chapter in, and I just gave up. I just, I just couldn't bear it. That's very unusual for me. I'll read any old rubbish, usually.
0: Last one. The book you've wanted to read for a long time got mired by, by life, by length of the book, but yet forced yourself to finish. Not because you were particularly enjoying it, but because mm. you didn't want to not finish it.
1: Mm. Um. Be an odd one really because i'm going to say the dark is rising which is a kids book um I, I if you had that sort of 70s comprehensive school education as i did you know you were sort of split into groups and your friends were always reading more interesting books than you were and you know you know we we, we were all reading alan garner and sort of great stuff like that um, the owl service you know was a great favorite But I never got to read Dark is Rising. And I picked up The Dark is Rising um, last year over Christmas and got halfway through. Life overwhelmed me a little bit. And then I discovered that it was the second in a five book series. And if there's anything more tragic for a, a sort of, you know, slightly on the spectrum nerd, as I've been called many times, you know, you can't read the second book in a five book series. And, and make that the first book you're reading, can you? <laughs> so I sort of ground to a halt and then sort of forced myself to finish it over the summer um, and then launched into A Very Merry Christmas this year by starting at book one. Um, and now I'm on book four. <laughs> so I feel, I feel like I've, I've, I'm completing the cycle. I've got one more book to go.
0: And what's, what? just uh, one more for about it. What mm. is, I've just thought of this one. What's the sort of the big thing that everyone everyone out there loves every sort of the franchise you could do book series, whatever that you from the start have just sort of thought, i don't see it I don't see it that's a bit of a negative note, but and I might shift this one around but well,
1: the, the new star trek films uh-huh. i just I just don't get it I mean particularly when you have got you know. You know, and I'm, this, this will be a, an odd thing for me to say, perhaps, and maybe a bit controversial. Um, but Some of the great things Disney are doing with Star Wars, you know, I think, you know, that's a franchise that's really steaming places. And then you've got this sort of weird <laughs> thing that they're doing, buggering up Star Trek. Um, but then you've got, and I can't, you know, anybody who knows me listening to this will think, there's one big thing, there's one huge part of his life that he hasn't mentioned. So even though it's only vaguely relevant, I'm going to get in Doctor Who here. Of course. Because, Good man. you know, one of the things, one of the great influences, you know, Tom Baker. You know, so, you know, when you go back to those TTA handbooks, you he know, is. those little creepy background stories that they're putting you know, every single one of them. You can imagine the TARDIS materializing in some shady corridor and Tom Baker stepping out. Um, but that's a franchise that's developing in a really interesting way. Ratings go up and down as so they always well, but you know I had a conversation over Christmas with a friend who was sort of panicking about Disney's sort of involvement in the budgeting um, but the upside of that, as long as they don't wreck it, and you know Disney's treatment of Star Wars I think has been really really good, is that you elevate something um, into the new and emerging world culture which is sort of determined by the streaming services and you know, just going back to that sort of future-looking thing for a moment, you know, we are, we're in an age now where I think if things are established and are recognised now, then they won't drown in the milieu of stuff that's being produced and the endless sort of cheap movies on Netflix and what have you. And so actually I, I think it's a really good move to plant that, you know, Gallifreyan standard uh, in the middle of Disney Plus. Well,
0: absolutely. I mean, my own introduction to, to sci-fi was Tar- Doctor Who Tar-Dubble, Absolutely. So, uh, from the school library and then from uh, uh, Get Five for a Pound at uh, my S- local bookshop. So
1: School library, uh, Invisible Enemy and The Demons. Ah, and that's, that's, that's where you start. Dalek it?
0: Invasion of Earth and yeah. Revenge of the Cybermen. For yeah. yep. Dr. Garrick Fincham, what a pleasure it's been. A huge honour and we look forward to seeing, you know, I, people are going to really enjoy this interview. I, I know from just li- being part of it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Well,
1: look, the, and the, all the, the best. The honors, the honors, all mine. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I hope I haven't rambled on too much and I hope people enjoy it.
0: Thank you very much. My huge thanks to Garrick. And not just for the interview, but because you... Yes, you can, for a limited time only, download and read Interchange by our very own Garrick Fincham for free. That's nothing, zip, niente, pupkis, zero. Simply go to Amazon and search for Interchange Garrick Fincham. I guarantee you won't need to type more than Interchange ga and download a book that reviewers are calling Dystopian world-building at its Best and... A quietly excellent piece of sci-fi. Now, please teleport your attention to the podcast feed and listen to Storm Damage. Written by Garrick Fincham and adapted and read by yours truly. Here's a quick taste to whet your appetite. In the chamber, a crashing, rumbling chaos built in seconds to a deafening, screaming roar. Then, a smacking and slapping rose above that roar, but only for a moment before even that was swamped. Ground vibrating, a pressure wave racing through the chamber that the suits couldn't dampen. Fine grey dust, more like smoke, washed over them as their eardrums burst, just like the first time. Just like when she and Channa... Her head exploded like it had six years before and her face was suddenly slack and moving a blood tear rolled down her cheek My thanks to Garrick Fincham for letting me play in The Interchange Sandbox Eastern Promise is a prior's Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.